Hello, I'm Sharon Krauss, and this is Preternatural Investigations, a podcast about things that are strange but not too strange, the marvellous things that lie between the mundane and the miraculous. I'm a musician with a background in academic philosophy, a rationalist who believes there is magic, mystery and meaning to be found in the world around us. My title nods towards Ludwig Wittgenstein, and my approach owes something to William James's inquiries into religious experience and Mark Fisher's explorations of the weird and the eerie. Come with me into the realm of the preternatural. Episode 3 Magic, Mystery and a Sense of Wonder Children approach the world with a sense of wonder and are enchanted by the simplest things. Yet by the time we reach adulthood, for many of us, this sense of wonder has gone. We've grown out of it and we experience the world as a mostly unmagical place. I'm interested in what this change is due to and what we can do to prevent it happening. Can we keep a sense of wonder as we mature into adulthood? Or is it only possible to retain that childlike approach at the expense of maturity? There's a Jefferson Airplane song called Lather about a man who's just turned 30 but still behaves like a child. Whilst his contemporaries are doing important and sensible things like managing banks and commanding tanks, Lather still finds it a nice thing to do, to lie about nude in the sand, drawing pictures of mountains that look like bumps and thrashing the air with his hands. The contrast between sensible, responsible adulthood and the carefree, wonder-filled joys of childhood is starkly drawn, and Lather, when forced to accept that at the age of 30 he's too old for toys and games, goes to pieces. Must the two be mutually exclusive though, or are there approaches to adult life that allow for both wonder and responsibility? In exploring this question, I will argue that even though there are forces that work to eradicate wonder, Not only is it possible for us to retain a sense of wonder as we mature, but that it's loss, as well as diminishing the quality of our own experiences, has wider and more serious consequences. What are the things that might lead to a loss of wonder? There seems to be a connection between wonder and mystery. A lot of the things children wonder at are surprising and mysterious to them. A rainbow appearing in the sky. The melodic sounds a musician entices from her instrument. Animals encountered for the first time. Magical stories in which strange things happen and so on. A child's world is full of mystery and magic because the knowledge they have of the world is fragmentary. 
A child has only a handful of puzzle pieces and doesn't yet have a sense of how they fit together into a coherent whole. Maybe it's this pervading mysteriousness due to the gaps in a child's knowledge and understanding that makes the world seem magical to a child and makes wonder so much a part of childhood. As we grow older, we come to understand the world and things that once amazed us come to seem less mysterious. We learn to accept and normalise truths that at first seem strange and improbable. That the earth is round, that all life evolved as a result of natural selection, that Father Christmas doesn't exist, and so on. Mystery is replaced by knowledge and understanding. And if mystery is a necessary component of wonder, that would explain why many of us cease to experience wonder. But must the acquisition of knowledge and understanding banish wonder? Richard Dawkins thinks not. He argues that a rainbow remains awe-inspiring, regardless of how much we know about its causes. For Dawkins, wonder at natural phenomena is not only compatible with scientific knowledge of their causes, it increases in proportion to our understanding. As we learn more about nature, the more wonderful it comes to seem, and not only the appearances, but the underlying mechanisms are revealed to be wondrous. Knowledge and understanding of the things we are interested in can lead us into deeper appreciation of those things. And we may find that the more we come to know, the more questions and avenues of exploration open up to us, leading us yet deeper and deeper in, endlessly so. Music is like this for me. No matter how much musical experience and knowledge I gain, music remains mysterious and becomes ever more magical to me. If wonder is compatible with knowledge and understanding then, what is it about adulthood that makes a sense of wonder rare? Perhaps novelty is what's important for wonder. We wonder at and are amazed by the new and unusual, and we often become contemptuous of the familiar. Everything is new to a child, and maybe it's newness that causes wonder and delight. Children delight in nature, bright flowers to pick, puddles to splash in, leaves to crunch underfoot, the sea waves lapping at the shore. But as they grow up, these things become familiar. If a child spends her summer holidays in the same seaside town year after year, the sea waves may lose their charm. She may start to take them for granted and come to find them boring. Must familiarity breed contempt though? Not always. My lover gazes at me and tells me he'll never tire of seeing my smile. How can that be true? 
Surely he'll get bored of seeing the same old face, day in, day out. Or if not, what kind of magic is at work here? And another example of enduring wonder. Every year, when I see the new spring shoots coming up, I feel a childish excitement. It's a repeat of what happened last year, the year before, and the year before that. But somehow, every year, after the chill and dark of winter, the arrival of spring still feels like a miracle. It's possible for something to be both familiar and known and retain its wonder then. When something becomes familiar and predictable though, what often happens is that we stop paying attention to it. Instead of looking properly at it, we see what we expect to see. When I come to my desk in the morning, sit down in my usual chair and power up my laptop, I'm not really looking at these things. They're familiar and useful tools and I just use them and take them for granted. Items of furniture and electronic devices tend to be unchanging and are unlikely to surprise us. So it makes sense not to devote too much attention to them. What about if we stop paying attention to more important things though? What if we come to take for granted everything and everyone around us? The more we experience, the more preconceptions and prejudices we acquire, and these can lead us to be lazy in our perceptions. Unlike young children, we don't come fresh to each new experience. To some extent, this change is inevitable. Our learning processes involve acquiring realistic expectations about what will happen in a wide range of circumstances. We quickly learn to make predictions and generalizations on the basis of experience in order to navigate the world safely and efficiently. Once we've burnt ourselves on a candle flame, we won't need to do it again and again to know that flames are hot, for example. We'll come to expect them all to be. When we generalize, we pay attention to what disparate things have in common, their similarities. The hotness of flames, the wetness of water, the sharpness of knives, and so on. We generalize over time, too, the table will be the same tomorrow as it is today. Generalizations are useful, but generalizations are simplifications, abstractions, containing some information, but leaving out the rest. In generalizing, we focus on what a group of things have in common and discard as irrelevant their divergent features we can come to forget that we're doing so. Thus, generalizing can easily lead to a kind of blindness or narrowing of our perceptions without us being aware that that's happening. 
If we generalize and treat things in a general category as interchangeable, this can lead us to experience each new thing we come upon as a repeat of things previously experienced and to assume there's nothing new to see. If that becomes our outlook, the seen one, seen them all attitude, then we become jaded and unimpressible and the world becomes monotonous and boring to us. We miss out on the uniqueness and multifaceted nature of everything we experience and will not be open to wonder. Every candle flame is hot, but every candle flame is unique, subtly different from every other. Poplar trees all have the same long pointy paintbrush shape, but no two poplar trees are identical. Every flower, every cloud, every sunset, and certainly every person is a one-off. And if we're to be open to experiences of wonder, we must not forget this. Generalizations are one kind of useful simplification. Another simplifying tendency we're prone to is the tendency to focus on the things that are useful to our goals and purposes. Often our goals and purposes dictate the way we view the world. We assess things purely on the basis of their use value, limiting our attention to those aspects of things that are relevant to our goals or useful to our purposes. When we want to cut a cake, we choose a knife with the right kind of edge for cake cutting, not caring about anything except how well suited it is to our purpose. If we view things purely in terms of their usefulness to our purposes and value them accordingly, the value of a knife being solely determined by its sharpness, for example, things will be seen to possess instrumental value insofar as they are means to our ends, but nothing will be taken to have inherent value. Things become tools to us, valued as means to achieving our aims. A knife is to be used for cutting, and one knife is much the same as another, providing they're both sharp enough. As I mentioned earlier, seeing my chair, desk and laptop as tools I can rely on and put to my purposes is not particularly problematic. These things are designed to serve my purposes, to be means to my ends. But if I move through the world viewing everything and everyone in this way as tools to be used or discarded, my experiences of the world will be severely limited. Like generalizing, Use-value simplification is a narrowing of perception and can lead us to take things for granted rather than seeing them fully. Given that generalization and use-value simplification are necessary tools for getting around in the world and achieving our goals, is loss of wonder the price we must pay? I will argue that it's possible to keep these simplifying tendencies in check 
by maintaining a kind of dual or expansive vision, seeing the particular as well as the general, the inherent value as well as the use value, and thus retain our sense of wonder. In order to do so, I must first take a detour into the realm of ethics, as it's in our interactions with each other, acting as moral agents, that it's easiest to see that this kind of expansive vision is a necessity, not a luxury. In propounding his theory of ethics, Immanuel Kant devised the following rule. Act in such a way as to treat humanity always as an end and never merely as a means. In other words, although, according to Kant, we can use others in order to achieve our goals as means to our ends, we must always at the same time treat them as beings in their own right as more than just the means to our ends. If I hire a builder to build an extension, or call a waiter over to my table to order a drink, for example, I'm using them as means to my ends. That's fine. Their jobs are to provide these services. But I must, at the same time, treat them fairly, engage with them respectfully recognize them as fellow human beings with their own projects, concerns, hopes, fears and loves, depths and dreams. I must treat them as ends in themselves, not merely as tools useful to me in my purposes. This aspect of Kant's moral philosophy seems incontrovertible. Any ethical system must contain something like this requirement that we see others as having inherent value and treat them accordingly, even when we're interacting with them in order to further our own ends. If we fail to see the inherent value in others and treat them solely as means to our own ends, we objectify them and thereby wrong them. Earlier, I talked about how we lose out as a result of oversimplification that our perceptions of the world become stunted and the world becomes flat and dull, incapable of inducing wonder. Now we can see that as well as the loss to ourselves, our failure to see others fully is a failure that affects those around us and so is a moral failure. If when I look at a waiter, all I see is a member of the general and useful category of waiter, then not only do I limit the kinds of experience open to me, but in seeing the waiter in this one-dimensional way, I fail to see him as a fellow human being. If I view the waiters in a restaurant in the same way as I view the tables, chairs and cutlery, merely as things that enhance or detract from my dining experience, there's a whole world of human interactions I'm closing myself off to. And in closing myself off in this way, I am guilty of objectification and morally culpable. There's more at stake than experiencing wonder then. 
When we allow our expectations and prejudices to govern our interactions with others, when we view them in terms of generalities and use value, instead of meeting them as individuals, we lose out on the possibility of meaningful engagement with them, and this cuts both ways. We deny others the freedom to express themselves, to be seen and heard by us, and in so doing, we deny ourselves the opportunity to hear their voices, to truly see them. Whenever we put others in a box, the result is that we too end up being boxed in, whether we realize it or not. In our interactions with others, we must engage with them in an expansive way that enables us to see them as more than just useful tools or objects then, both in order to fulfill our moral obligations and in order to be open to experiences of wonder. And if we can be open and expansive in our interactions with others, perhaps we can also be in our engagement with the world in general being open to the uniqueness and particularity, the inherent value of things we encounter, trees, animals, music, art, landscapes, sunsets, and so on. Though not generally thought to be a moral requirement, is how we engage meaningfully with and find wonder in the wider world. In the last episode, I argued that only by being open to the magic of a place will we be capable of experiencing it. I want to say that the same is true of any experience of wonder. We must be open to the wondrous in the world around us in order to find it. The idea that places, people, and many other things are multifaceted, multi-layered palimpsests capable of endlessly revealing themselves to us is one of my central themes. What does this openness involve and how do we acquire it? I talked earlier about mystery drawing us deeper into something and that leading to knowledge and understanding that leads us to delve deeper still. There are things we find ourselves irresistibly drawn to and that pull us in. These are the things we fall in love with, things that reveal their depths endlessly and wondrously, that enchant us. And if our engagement with these things is ever deepening, perhaps that's why we talk of falling in love. Perhaps we can fall a little in love with other, less beguiling aspects of the world by choosing to open ourselves up to them, allowing them in, which somehow seems to be the same thing as, instead of holding back, allowing ourselves to fall into their depths. We can choose to engage with the things around us in this way, or we can, conversely, see them as no more than furniture to be manipulated and used sat on or moved out of the way, or traded in for newer, more exciting models.
Descartes describes wonder as a sudden surprise of the soul, which brings it to consider with attention the objects that seem to it unusual and extraordinary. This description seems apt in that it captures the essence of what experiencing wonder feels like, as well as leaving it open as to whether the objects that cause those experiences are unusual and extraordinary in themselves, or seen as being so as the result of our ability to see something unusual and extraordinary in them. The things that seem inherently mysterious and that pull us into their depths surprise and delight our souls. Other things less so, and if we're to find wonder in the more mundane aspects of the world, we'll have to take a less passive role, not expect to simply be bowled over by them. There are creative elements to experiencing wonder in the world. We can draw on our imagination in order to look at familiar things afresh and see them in new and startling ways and to unlock the magic in things we initially find less inspiring. If we hope to find wonder in our everyday lives, we must cultivate an outlook that enables us to find it. We must be prepared to look harder, listen more carefully, scratch below the surface of things, look at things from new and different angles. We must question assumptions and received wisdom and find things out for ourselves. We must be prepared to come to things with new eyes, looking to be surprised rather than to be proven right. We should remember that our experiences of something are just the tip of the iceberg that is its total reality. John Ruskin thought that learning to draw was important for everyone and set up colleges to teach drawing to people who would not otherwise have had the opportunity to learn. What's important about learning to draw is not that we become great artists, but that in the process we learn to see. If we sit down to draw a scene, we'll be looking at it far more closely and for much longer than we'd look at it otherwise. We'll notice details we hadn't previously paid any attention to, see relations between shapes and colours, and appreciate beauty in simple or otherwise ugly things. Learning to see in this way, to see things we'd otherwise have missed, and to find beauty in the world, makes our visual perceptions richer and more subtle, and opens us up to experiencing wonder. In the same vein, there are ways we can train ourselves to listen more actively. Composer and improviser Pauline Oliveros developed a technique called deep listening, in which attention is directed to the interplay of sounds and silences, or the sound-silence continuum. 
Sound is not limited to musical or speaking sounds, but is inclusive of all perceptible vibrations, sonic formations. The relationship of all perceptible sounds is important. The practice is intended to expand consciousness to the whole space-time continuum of sound silences. Oliveros goes on to say that deep listening is intended to facilitate creativity in art and life. Creativity means the formation of new patterns, exceeding the limitations and boundaries of old patterns, or using old patterns in new ways. If we learn how to listen attentively and notice the interplay between different sounds, small changes in the sounds around us and the spaces between the sounds, we're stretching our ears outwards, reaching out to the world with them, if you like. In listening, we are active and engaged and a connection is forged between us and the world. There are other tools that help us to see the world in new and surprising ways. Meditation, trance work and psychedelics being obvious examples. And the creative visions of artists, writers and musicians can represent the world to us in startling and wondrous ways if we allow ourselves to be transported. Whatever route we take, being open to the unknown and seeing the world as capable of surprising and delighting us seem key requirements. Being aware that even the most familiar and well-known things have hidden depths and giving them the chance to reveal those depths to us is important. We only become disenchanted with something or someone when we feel them to be thoroughly predictable and unsurprising. A nice example that illustrates the mistake of assuming that what we see is all there is to see is the story told by Rupert Holmes's cheesy pop song Escape the Pina Colada song. The song's narrator is bored with his relationship and excited by an advert he reads in the personals column of a newspaper. The ad invites him to respond if he likes pina coladas and getting caught in the rain, if he likes making love at midnight in the dunes of the Cape. I'm the love that you've looked for, write to me and escape. He responds that yes, he likes those things and wants to meet her and escape only to find, when she arrives at the bar to meet him, that it's his own lovely lady. It's a happy surprise for each of them to discover that the other has a hidden romantic side, and maybe they'll learn not to take each other for granted in future.
I'm Sharon Krauss, and this has been Preternatural Investigations. <laughs>